Turn, please, to uh, Romans and chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, please. I want to, be, I want to read. Um, I'll read the whole chapter. I'll only cover a bit of it, but I'll read the whole chapter. So Romans chapter 2, please, if you'll turn there. And if you'll look in the bulletin or on the screen, I suppose we have before us a prayer of illumination. This is a prayer that we pray before we open the scripture, before we read, really, so that God will help us to see it and understand and believe, and we need his help. So this is a prayer I would like for us to pray together. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing to your majesty. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So Romans in chapter 2, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be judged. For when Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, or their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, know his will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? Or you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. If you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who merely who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, the word of the Lord remains forever. Now Paul, as we know, is writing this um, letter to the church in Rome, um, to humble them into harmony and hope. He's writing them to humble them into heart, harmony and hope. Uh, I take that from actually chapter 15, from a couple of uh, verses here that lay out Paul's purpose, his prayer really, in writing to them. In Romans fifteen five, he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's hoping is at the end of all this that they'll be brought together in harmony, almost as a, a singing, different notes perhaps, but coming into this beautiful chord that's pleasing, a pleasing sound to the Lord. So they come together, different backgrounds, different experiences, but yet together to God in harmony one voice glorifying him. And then verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may have hope. And I said he's, he's humbling them into harmony and hope because especially now in these opening chapters, we're being humbled. They were being humbled. He was discussing their sin and saying essentially that each of us is helpless to save ourselves, hopeless, therefore, in need of the righteousness of God, which is a gift that comes by way of the gospel. We're all in the same line together. None is above any other. We all come to the Lord same way, hopeless, helpless, in need of only what he can give to us, his righteousness. And see, ultimately, that's our hope because we're not hoping in ourselves. We know ourselves at this point, and so uh, to hope in ourselves would be foolish. There would be no hope at all. If I got to think, I've got to earn it. If I got to think, I have to do it enough so that God will accept me. I have no hope at all. And so we're humbled into hope. We're humbled by seeing our need, but also by seeing the great glory of the gospel and the work of Christ, who is indeed our hope. So that's Paul's desire here as we, as we read through these, especially chapters on sin. He's humbling us to unite us with one voice to glorify God in the hope that together we share in Jesus. So we began in verse uh, verses 16 and 17 by laying out the gospel. He says, the gospel is the power of God into salvation to all who believe, first the Jew, then the, the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That is, it's a gift. It's received by faith. 
For it's written in the scriptures, the righteous, those who have been declared to be righteous before God, accepted by him, live by faith, faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes through him. And Paul says this is really needed because at the same time that the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith for faith in the gospel, his wrath is being revealed and being poured out upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings. And you say, well, is that fair? And he says, yes. Because as he talks about them or they, even those who may not have a great special revelation of God, may not have the the scriptures, but yet they're without excuse. Why? Because of creation. Creation convicts us if we don't see it and fall on our face before God and worship him. It's because I've revealed in my creation my, uh, my eternal power and my divine nature. You should see that and you should worship me. But rather than do that, human beings suppress that truth and unrighteousness. They turn away. And they exchange the glory of God his eternal power, his divine nature, for that which is lesser, to worship the creation. And once our worship is disordered, all of life is disordered. Because we don't stop worshiping when we stop worshiping God. We put other things in in God's place and become enslaved to them. And so once we stop seeing everything through God and everything under him, when we stop seeking him to define us, when we stop seeking him to direct us, we stop delighting in him and seeking someone else or something else to define us or to direct us or to find in that our delight, then Everything gets turned on its ear. And he starts out with, 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 with our understanding of human sexuality. And he, he says that, that, that we exchange the truth about ourselves for a lie. And so we find ourselves in all kinds of sexual impurity, whether it's heterosexuals with each other outside of marriage or whether it's a, a distortion of our passions and homosexual behavior. It distorts And we see it, and he says, that's the wrath of God that's been revealed. Because you see, he he gives us over to these things, to our our lusts and our passions and our idols. And he says, I'm going to give you over to those, and that's the wrath of God that's being revealed. And not only then, but his wrath is poured out in such a way that he gives us over to our own devices that it distorts every kind of human relationship and destroys them. And he says, not only do you do these things, but you give approval for others who join you. And we admitted, I think, last week, we can see that. But now this week, he begins in in chapter 2, and he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Um, It is therefore, but because they didn't have any excuse, you don't have any excuse either. He's been talking about those who have no excuse. Therefore, you have no excuse. No, he moves from talking about they and them to you. And and we're curious about that. The the they and them, we certainly can identify with. But, But those perhaps with only the revelation of creation, they and them seem to have a bit more. They're able to discern 
what's right and what's, what's wrong. They don't approve of what they do. So, something Paul's talking about, those who are from Israel, Jewish people, particularly even maybe even Jewish believers, he's bringing into a certain type of conviction here. He'll talk about the law and then Jews in particular in verse 17, but here he just has this generic, oh man. So perhaps we shouldn't go quite there yet in saying, well, this is about Jews, the other about Gentiles. Uh, but perhaps just people we could call moralists. In fact, Christopher Ash, who's a theologian from um, Great Britain, says that uh, a moralist would be a person who would read Romans chapter one and then write this note to Paul. Dear Paul, I've just read the second half of Romans chapter one. I congratulate you on a vigorous, refreshing expose of evil. I agree with you that it's disgusting what people not only be, when people not only behave badly but actually approve of bad behavior. It did me good to read your chapter. You'll be glad to know that I, for one, do not for a moment approve of those who practice those terrible things. On the contrary, I recognize them for the evils that they are and agree that such people are without excuse. I look forward to chapter two. And Paul says, not so, not so quickly. Because I need to tell you that in not approving of what they do, you condemn yourself. Because you say the things they do are worthy of the condemnation of God. And I'm here to tell you, in one fashion or another, you do them too. You just are unwilling in your self-righteousness, in your hypocrisy, to see it. So the question is, is that really true of us? Is that really true of human beings? Are we really like that? Do we really see in others that which we condemn, but can't see it really in ourselves? Or maybe we can see it, but, but it's just not quite as big a deal as when they do it. I just think about keys. Nobody messes with my keys. Now, when I misplace my keys, well, I misplace them and I go find them when someone else misplaces my keys. Especially if I find them in her purse. That's big time trouble. And that's, that's the way we are, isn't it? We're harsh so often in our judgment of others, lenient in ourselves. I put... Actually, St. Thomas a Kempis put, I stole the prayer of confession from him today. That's a confession. This line, forgive the harsh judgments I have made of others and the leniency I've shown myself. My suspicion is if you're paying attention to that, when you prayed that, you said, yeah, it's true. Forgive the lies I've told to others and the truths I have avoided. Forgive the pain I've caused others and the indulgence 
I've shown myself. I suspect if you were paying attention when you prayed that, you thought of the person sitting next to you probably, and then hopefully yourself. John Stott, a theologian commentator, uh, writes, uh, uh, quotes uh, Thomas Hobbes, a 17th century, 17th century political philosopher. He, he, he writes him, he quotes him, he says, he wrote of people who are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. Isn't that true about us? Isn't that true about human beings? Uh, we, we, um, we keep ourselves in our own favor. We, we, we make ourselves look good, at least to ourselves, by observing the imperfections of other men. I mean, don't you know people like that? Don't you know people who love to point out the imperfections of everybody else, but they can't see their own? I, I just did it, right? I just did it. I, I thought of somebody else. I thought, yeah, I know people like that. <laughs> and Paul would be going, psst, Bill, I was writing about you, brother, right? And you go, yeah, I know. Stodd goes on to comment. He says, this device, seeing the imperfections of others and not in ourselves, this device enables us simultaneously to retain our sins and our self-respect. <laughs> because we, we tell ourselves, I can see it. I, I'm, I'm a good guy. I can, see every, I can see the sin this is. But if I don't apply it to myself, I... Retain my own sin and self-respect. He says it's a convenient arrangement, but one that's also both slick and sick. It's slick. We can get away with it all the time, but it's really sick because it is spiritually dangerous. It shows our lack of self-awareness. It shows that we can't see our own sin, and it ultimately brings judgment upon ourselves. You remember the story of uh, King David and uh, Nathan the prophet. Remember David had grievously sinned. He had committed adultery with uh, Bathsheba and then ultimately in essence had her husband killed by putting him in the uh, front of the military so he would end up being vulnerable and, and ultimately killed. And there's this great story, you remember, that, that um, uh, Nathan comes to David. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and presented it for the man who had come to him. You get the picture. I mean, what a horrible thing. I mean, this. 
guy has lots of animals in his herd, and yet when his friend comes to visit, he goes and takes the one little ewe lamb, the one that the, the, the kids, the kid's pet of his poor neighbor, and takes and he slaughters that animal and feeds his guests. You can only imagine, verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. You know, David could see it. He could see it so clearly in that other person. But of course, he had done exactly the same thing, and he had missed it. This very one who was a man after God's own heart, this very one who was the king of Israel, this very one who was the poet and the songwriter of God's people, and even for us, and, and yet still, he couldn't see it. If God were like us, he would make a mental note. I need to get somebody to write this when we do the New Testament. Romans chapter 2. It took Nathan to say to David, you are the man. And it takes the apostle to say to us, you are the you. This is really true of us. Really true of us. And, 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 and you want to say, well, is it really that big a deal? I mean, why, why not, Paul, at least give us ex, you know, partial credit, right? I mean, we at least recognized it was wrong. They couldn't even do that. We at least recognized it was wrong. Don't we get some credit for that? And he goes, well, not really. You, you would if you would repent and not hang on to it. Because notice how Paul goes on, verse 3. He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says, listen, here's the situation. That as long as you hang on to this sin and you're heaping condemnation on you, you're storing up the wrath of God. Because if, if you really get it, if you really understand, if you're really one who's received the righteousness of, of Christ through the gift of God, then your life would change and you would repent. You would see actually your sin in the sin of others. Remember how Jesus put it. Turn to Matthew in chapter 7. Remember this in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 1, Jesus said, judge not that you not be judged. Now, of course, he wasn't saying that we can't make any judgments at all. We'll read this through and we'll realize what he's actually after. In the same way, Paul isn't saying, look at the things that the other people do that are sinful and wrong and approve of them. He's not saying that. He's saying, you're right at that point. You shouldn't approve of those things. In fact, if you approve of them, then you're no better than they are in that sense. And you just, we just end with verse 32 in Romans chapter 1. You will have fit that category. But I'm telling you, you're in a different category. Not any better, but you're in a different category. You see it's wrong, but you do it yourself. It's this thing of hypocrisy. And Jesus is saying, now, you will make judgments. In fact, he said you've got to judge the teachers to see if they're false or true teachers, true or false prophets. You've got to be able to evaluate fruit from people's lives in your life. Is it good fruit or is it bad fruit? If it's fruit that's consistent with the gospel or it isn't fruit that's consistent with the gospel. So he said, that, that isn't what I mean. He said, but just hang on there with me. He 
says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Same thing Paul's saying in Romans chapter two. You say that's wrong, then it's wrong. And if you do it, then you've just judged yourself. With, for with the judgments you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then here he gets us, right? This is the human tendency. He says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? And Jesus means to sound that crazy. He says, what you have in your eye is this 40-foot beam And what your neighbor has, what your brother has, is this tiny little speck of sand. But it's amazing that you can see past the beam and see that speck. So he says, now deal with the beam. That is to say, repent. That is to say, acknowledge your sin. See, the first thing I should think of when I see someone else's sin is my own. The first response I should have to someone else's sin is my own repentance. Then after all that's taken care of, then I can look again and help my brother and go to them. So Paul says, what we should be doing when we read this is to repent of our own sins. Remember Luther's first of his 95 theses that he put on the door of Wittenberg uh, was about the the church's misunderstanding of repentance. Luther's thesis, the first one was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's that's the nature of, of who we are. We see the truth of God. We see ultimately our own lives. We see where we've missed and we repent. We turn, we change, we admit, we confess. And then we seek the Lord to help us to live in a way that's pleasing to him. You see, in a way that's pleasing to him. And, and Paul goes on. And I, I don't have enough time probably to do this justice, but I, I need to get to this. Uh, Paul goes on in verse six. And he says, here's why all this is important. He'll render to each one according to his works. Now, we read that and we go, wait a minute. I thought all this salvation thing was by grace through faith. I thought the righteousness thing was a gift and we received it. We didn't have to do any work. And, and, and Paul would most certainly agree. We, we have to allow him to be consistent here. That's what he's, he said in chapter one earlier. And that's what he'll continue to say uh, throughout this, this, this letter. In fact, in chapter three, he'll sum up by saying, verse 21, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets witness to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, right? There is no distinction for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter five, verse one, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's Paul mean when he says 
that will be, uh, will be uh, God will render each one according to his works. He means the same thing he always has meant. That our works, our lives, are indicators, evidence of who we are. Always. How does James put it? I will show you my faith by what I do. Faith without works is dead. That is to say, it's not really saving faith. Saving faith, really, when we really do have faith, we really have received the righteousness of God. What does that do? It moves us. It changes us. What's the first thing that happens when we see it, when God opens our eyes? We're born again, and and we we see our sin. What do we do? Oh, we confess it, and we repent. We turn. We desire, what? That our lives would be different. Our lives perfect? No, of course not. That's not his point at all. But notice how he describes these two. One saved, one not. One who has eternal life, one who doesn't. He says, he'll render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, uh, the Jew first and also the Greek. The glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. He says, look, the ones who are given eternal life have these characteristics. By patience in well-doing, they seek for glory and honor in immortality. They do good. That's not to earn their salvation, but it's evidence of it. Someone who, by patience in well-doing, what did Jesus say? He said, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. There's a, there's a patience, there's a steadfastness in this well-doing. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews in chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence in him to the end. This is a perseverance. This isn't a something that happens today and I forget about it tomorrow and then pick it up on Thursday. This is something that's true of us as believers. Everything's changed, how does Paul put it? We become new creatures in Christ Jesus. Something has really, really changed. Are we perfect? Obviously not. But what's the bent of our lives? What's the desires of our, of our life? It is, it is to do that which is pleasing to the Lord, to seek for glory, not ours, but his to seek for the glory of God. That's, that's, what, that's what drives us to say, yes, I want that. I want to know the presence of God. I want to know his glory. It was the, the great cry of Moses, of course. He would, let me, you know, show me your glory. And God would show us his glory in Jesus. And he would show us his glory in the gospel. And now he's to be glorified in us. So someone who's is repentant, is crying out to God, enable me to continue on, enable me to persevere, enable me to do that which is good, enable me to please you. Uh, and, and what I'm seeking, because what I'm seeking is not my glory, but yours. And then he says, who seeks 
who seeks honor. You remember how Jesus put it in John chapter 5, verse 44, speaking to the religious leaders. He says, how can you believe when you see, receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? You're seeking the praise of men. Don't do that. But one who's a believer is one who seeks God's affirmation, seeks to please God. And that's what Paul's saying here. Who seeks immortality, that is, seeks that, that which will not be corrupted. How does, how does Peter put it in 1 Peter in chapter 1? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. He says, that's what you desire. You desire this, this life of glory with God because you know it can never die, it can never fade, it can never spoil Nothing will ever diminish it, degrade it, decay it. It will continue on. That's what you're really after. He says, but, but there are those who are self-seeking, unrighteous. There'll be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. Paul's saying this. This means everything. Don't trifle with sin. When you see it in others, don't take pride in yourself. When you see it in others, don't put them down. Or you you may help them in some way, shape, or form, hopefully. But first, use it as an opportunity to see yourself and to repent. And if you can't see yourself, pray that God would enable you to see it. And you say, well, I'm not like that. And you might not be. I mean, there's sins that perhaps you've never been tempted with, at least that you know of, and then sins you've actually never really actually fulfilled. But, but you know, right? I've said this before, but when I'm with someone and they're confessing sin to me and we're praying about that, I can always build a bridge for me to them. You can always build a bridge from my life to their sin. And I've talked with sinners from every perspective imaginable. Things I'd never thought to do. But yet I, hmm, I could get there. I could get there. As I make to reading the Sermon on the Mount, so delightful and painful because Jesus literally gets at the heart of the matter. So now you haven't done that, but you've wanted to. You go, yeah. So Paul says, listen, I, I, I know how we are. So rather than being judgmental and self-righteous, Hypocritical, be honest. You see it, know it's true of you. 
repent. Persevere in doing good. Seek the glory of God. Seek the praise that comes from God, the honor that he gives in our salvation and receiving us. Seek that which is incorruptible, that which sin can't take away. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us, me and everyone here and watching. I give you thanks for your word that speaks in every time to every, everyone. Um, God, we, we see your wrath revealed so many ways, the way we treat each other, the way nations treat each other, the way peoples treat each other in wars and divisions among us, on the basis of color or ethnicity or nationality. Or we see the injustice of one human being to another and hatred and gossip and slander and faithlessness and arrogance and ruthlessness. And I, we see your wrath revealed. I pray that you would work to bring the gospel to bear so that your righteousness would be revealed. I pray that the church can make known the manifold wisdom of God and how we understand your will for us and how we, how we treat others. I pray too, Father, that we would be a people who are so grateful for your grace to us, the grace that has been given, the mercy that's been shown, that we wouldn't be a judgmental people, but a discerning people, that we don't approve the sins of others, that we would know our own lives and our own sin, and we would deal with the logs in our own eyes before anything else. May we sympathize with the weaknesses of others, even as you, Lord Jesus, sympathizes with, sympathize with ours. May we be as kind and forbearing and patient with others as you have been with us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.